This is the Country Podcast with Justin Weller. Episode 2. Originally recorded on July 26th, 2020. My name's Justin Weller and we are here to talk about life, about politics and philosophy, and how to live without dying. We're going to be continuing to talk today about uh, our main thesis, which is... It's all bullshit, and it's all bad for you. And institutions, as they grow larger, as they gain power, as they get uh, older in years, they end up seeking power for power's sake. It's, uh, it's something that you see across time, across institutions, across uh, civilizations. The idea actually came from a Roman poet named Juvenal. I'm not sure that's the uh, <laughs> right pronunciation, but it sure is interesting. Bread and circuses is the phrase. And in a political context, the phrase really means to generate public approval, not by excellence in public service and not by public policy, but by diversion and distraction and by satisfying the most immediate or base requirements of a populace, right? So give them bread and show them a big uh, a big circus, the gladiators, right? The Colosseum. Give them something to pay attention to while we actually do other things. So that's, the, um, that's where we want to start today. So I'm curious, uh, along those same lines, do you know what the deficit is going to be for the federal government this year? Would it surprise you to learn that it's likely to be at least four times as large as it's ever been in the history of the United States? Would it surprise you to learn that it could hit as high as $5 trillion, which is one quarter, approximately, of the entire economy? It's approximately, as I said, four times higher than it's ever been. And to give you an idea... George W. Bush's eight-year administration added $5.8 trillion to the deficit. So about the same we're going to add this fiscal year. Barack Obama, $8.5 trillion. These are outrageous figures, but they're over eight years. We're talking about $5 trillion in one year. It's insane. And I remember Reagan, right? Like the big knock on him from the Democrats in the 80s was uh, the huge deficits that he was running. Now, uh, you know, obviously his supporters would argue that he was spending a ton of money to win the Cold War. Either way, $1.8 trillion over eight years. It's simply unfathomable, which I love to say, I guess, but uh, I, I just can't believe this is where we are. Here's some more information. And this is from Jack Howe at uh, Barron's. You can find it if you just uh, Google deficit $5 trillion. Um, we learned the U.S. government's deficit for the month of June alone hit $864 billion a record. The forecast for the fiscal year ending September stands at $3.7 trillion, more than double the high set in 2009. Each $1 trillion works out to about $7,700 for every household. Every household, $7,700 is one trillion. So if we get to five, that means your house 
in my house, in every other house in America, is going to be eating $35,000. Which is, if you look at the stats, uh, that's on top of more than $130,000 per household already owed in the the national uh, federal debt. And so again, Jack here in Barron's goes on to talk about uh, something called modern monetary theory, which to me just blows out any, any sense of right and wrong, dollars and cents. This is the way we ought to approach things. But nonetheless, let's talk a little bit about it. He interviews a, a professor from Stony Brook uh, named Stephanie Kelton. Kelton is also a former chief economist for Democrats on the Senate Budget Committee and a former presidential campaign advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders. And she says in this article, um, he asks if a $3.7 trillion deficit is extreme. And she says that, no, the $3.7 trillion part is fine, but that the use of the word deficit might be the problem. Countries that make their own currency can't go broke. They can simply make more money. You understand what she's saying? They can print more money, meaning every dollar that you have is worth less because now there's more of them, right? I'll, uh, I'll share some uh, stats on that in a sec here. Um, uh, the, she goes on to say, concepts like the deficit and the debt ceiling and balanced budget agreements are accounting constructs, not real limits. Spending is limited by inflation, which is determined in part by the amount of slack in the economy, spare workers and resources. This to me just screams like a bunch of gobbledygook. I mean, it seems to me that the point of this is politicians want to spend money, want to enrich themselves, want to put in their own pet projects, regardless of the money they have, regardless of the implications down the line, because, hey, we can just print more money because we're, uh, we're the controllers of the economy. And this sort of attitude is what's wrong with, with everything that goes on in Washington. It's like, I don't have to play by your rules. I don't have to do uh, what would be fiscally prudent. I don't have to worry about how your children and grandchildren will pay off these debts that we're now running at four times the pace that we used to, which already was out of control. It's insane. And so you might say, well, Justin, uh, you know, we're going through a pandemic. This has never been seen before. It's, uh, you know, it's just temporary. It's never been temporary, first of all. Second, you know, Bush, as we, as we documented, had two recessions and the global war, war on terror, 9-11. We spent a ton of money on that. And there was a lot of backlash. And yet it pales in comparison to what we're doing this year with the pandemic. Same thing with Obama. The financial crisis, right? Everything skidded to a halt. And yet, the trillion dollars that I was personally outraged about, uh, I think it was 09, maybe uh, 2010, I can't remember off the top of my head, but one of those years, we had a trillion dollar deficit, and you know there was a ton of outrage, there was a ton of discussion about it. And I ask you now, Bread and circuses. Have you heard that the deficit might be four to five trillion dollars this year? I mean, like within the next two months, the uh, federal fiscal year ends uh, September thirtieth. 
So we're talking about a few months from now. I want to go back to this idea, too, of printing money. That's um, the professor from Stony Brook thinks is the solution to all of our problems. The Federal Reserve, which is where we print money, where we create uh, how much money is available in the economy, was, was created at the end of 1913. So our country existed for what? What is that? Approximately 150 years without a Federal Reserve. And, you know, there, were, there are definitely reasons why we have a Federal Reserve. I'm not uh, trying to throw the baby out with a bathwater. But here's an idea of what I'm talking about. And what the professor from Stony Brook doesn't want you to know, I don't think. In 1914, $1 was equivalent, excuse me, equivalent in purchasing power to about $25.78 in 2020. A difference of over $24 in just over 106 years. So in other words, the economy has inflated the price of a dollar approximately 2,500%. Meaning that if you just buried your dollar in the yard or under your mattress or whatever it is people do with money, it'd now be worth 1 25th of what it is now in just 100 years. And so as they spend this money and then they go print this money, Everything that you have in your bank accounts, in your 401ks, uh, in the value of your home, everything becomes worth less, and you're required to do more. Not to mention the interest payments that we'll be uh, having to face here soon. It's going to eat up the entire federal deficit. In fact, in my opinion, if something isn't done in the next 10 to 20 years, really, next 10 years, we're going to see a default of the entire federal system. It's bankrupt already by any, <laughs> uh, any measure that makes any sense in the world. Just look at the unfunded liabilities that aren't on the balance sheet. So we're in big trouble. And this is really, you know, part of what I, I, I mean, I think this podcast for me has been a lot about so far, and it's obviously very early, but a lot of it so far is about hopefully, helping people to see and understand what's actually happening. And although you may be presented with things in a certain way that sounds great, it sounds great because it's being presented that way. And there's actually a lot of bullshit in it. And that's um, something I hope to identify and point out. But I also want to be a part of the solution, right? Like you've got to define the problem, but you've got to define or or talk about how we might fix things. And, you know, I'm like everybody else. I don't have all the answers. I don't know. I just know that, you know, the way we go about these things is not working. It's getting worse. We get uh, so caught up in silly things. And we're not talking about the real issues, the real problems. And the reason we're not talking about those real issues and those real problems is because our leaders are not interested in solving them. They're interested in getting reelected, they are interested in uh, winning influence and power and money and enriching their friends and cronies. And they are interested in you being quiet about it. So they give you circus breads and circuses to, to mess around with. And so what I'm really talking about is we need a paradigm shift in government, a complete overhaul of everything that we do. 
I mean, if you just look at their systems, their processes, their, uh, you know, the way they go about doing things, they're 100 years old. There's no technology. There's no thought process about the best way to accomplish certain goals. There's so many vested interests. I mean, just, you know, the political parties and the unions involved and the tax breaks and the lobbyists and the consultants. Man, I, you know, it's just a way to enrich folks. I'm telling you, there are huge problems there. And we have to go about fixing them. We have to go about mar- modernizing our federal government, turning it into a 21st century government that works for the people. And we're just so far away from that. And uh, it's going to take a mindset that just doesn't exist. You know, the, the bureaucracies, the institutions, as I talked about in episode one, yes, they can accomplish big things that nothing else can. They can win world wars. They can uh, stop polio. They can do all those things, as I said. Um, but there's also a ton that needs to be fixed. So just a quick example. I want to talk about Dr. Fauci. And I know he's a very popular guy. It's somewhat controversial, depending on which side of the political spectrum you come from, left or right. Maybe even uh, are you a conformist or an independent thinker? More on that in a few minutes. But uh, I don't think this has gotten enough attention. And look, I don't want to beat up the guy. You know, like I said, I know he's uh, dedicated his life to service to this country. But the point of what I'm about to say is that there are people in this government that are completely entitled. And other than telling you what to do and how to do it, they're not interested in doing those things. It's kind of a do what I say, not what I do. And so I'm sure you saw that he threw out the first pitch at the uh, Nationals-Yankees game Thursday night. You may have seen pictures of him sitting in the stands during that game after he threw out the first pitch. You may also have seen, I've seen two different pictures of him sitting right next to two other people. I don't know who they are, but, you know, right in chairs, right next to each other. And Dr. Fauci with his mask off, laughing, appearing to be in conversation with these two other folks, looking at his phone. And that's one thing, right? Like, hey, you make a mistake, you forget, maybe there's some other reasonable explanation, I get it. But then when he was uh, interviewed about this and asked, you know, hey, you're not wearing a mask. You're out there telling everybody it's critical, it's vital that we wear masks to slow down the spread of of COVID, etc. And he sort of got his back up. He was like, hey, you know, that's not right. Basically, he said, I was dehydrated and I took my mask off to take uh, sips of water. And anybody who has a problem with that, basically, I forget exactly what he said, but basically, you know, move on. Don't pay attention to that. Meanwhile, the pictures I've seen, there's no water in the picture. There's nothing like that going on. And so this is the point, right? Like, clearly, he's not doing what he's telling everybody to do in this one particular case. And look, people make mistakes. I get it. That's fine. Just say, yeah, you're right. I messed up, you know? But the fact that he sort of gets his back up and tells people what appears by the evidence to be completely untrue, that he was just drinking water and that's it. I mean, he's sitting there laughing. He's got a smile on his face. Looks like they're talking. He's got his phone in his hand like he was just looking at his phone. Um, you know, to me, that screams of entitlement. 
I'm an entitled prick, and you should do what I think and what I tell you to do, and don't question me about it. And this is what I'm talking about. This is the... This is what doesn't fix the problems that we have, you know? Um, So that's a quick aside, but I just wanted to uh, cover that because to me that is part of the problem is that we've got these uh, bureaucratic officials in Washington that think they're above the law. And in many cases they are. They can do what they like. Because at the end of the day, you know, he's at that ball game, right? All of us are sitting at home, not able to attend such a thing. And then add on top of that, he's the poster child of wear your damn mask, which I think we should, right? On top of that, he's not wearing his mask. On top of that, he lies about it and says, move along. So, uh, you know, I lost some respect for him in that instant. That whole episode sounds to me like or makes me think he's just one more entitled prick. So moving on. Next thing I want to talk to you about is uh, the Russian collusion hoax. <laughs> I'm just saying those words. I know it probably brings up a lot of emotion on both sides of the aisle. And, uh, and by the way, you know, can we get away from two sides of the aisle? Aren't there like a hundred sides? You know, this is part of the way that they call us into left versus right, black versus white. You know, I don't know. One versus two. And so it's very easy to manipulate the game when you, when you, you know, sort of herd people into these uh, very well-defined uh, sort, of, sort of pens and make them deal with things from that perspective. But I digress. The Russian collusion hoax. And, you know, I get it, right? Like my friends who are progressive or on the left at this point will say, man, why are we talking about this? This is four or five years old. Um, you know, try to... Uh, I'm tired of hearing about it. We have big problems, you know, et cetera. And I, I get that, right? Like, I see the point. I think the big thing for me is that we've never really aired all of what happened in the response to the election and, quite honestly, what the FBI and others in the Obama administration did, what happened, and how scary it is. So I've got an article here from The Hill. It's by Jonathan Turley, and it's an opinion. And certainly, I know, again, my friends, uh, my progressive friends on the left uh, probably don't like John Turley very much. He did testify against impeachment, I think rightfully so. I think he, wanted, he was one of, the, uh, one of the only fair and impartial people that testified in that uh, thing, which, again, think about it. It was only six months ago. Bread and circuses, that was a great circus in January <laughs> to keep you distracted from, from some other things. So I want to actually read to you a lot of this uh, opinion from Jonathan Turley because I think it's really brilliant. It's from The Hill again. The Washington Press Corps seems engaged in a collective demonstration of the legal concept of willful blindness or deliberately ignoring the facts following the release of yet another declassified document which directly refutes prior statements about the investigation into Russian collusion. The document shows that FBI officials used a national security briefing of then-candidate Donald Trump and his top aides to gather possible evidence for Crossfire Hurricane, its codename for the Russian investigation. 
He goes on, it is astonishing that the media refuses to see what is one of the biggest stories in decades. Biggest stories in decades. I agree. The Obama administration targeted the campaign of the opposing party based on false evidence. The media covered Obama administration officials ridiculing the suggestions of spying on the Trump campaign and of improper conduct with the Russia investigation. When Attorney General William Barr told the Senate last year that he believed spying did not occur, or I'm sorry, did occur, he was lambasted in the media. Remember that? Oh my God, you will use the word spying? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, going on, he, uh, including by James Comey and others involved in that investigation, the mocking, quote-unquote, wow response of the fired FBI director, FBI director received extensive coverage. Going on, the new document shows that in summer 2016, FBI agent Joe Plinka briefed Trump campaign advisors Michael Flynn and Chris Christie over national security issues, standard practice ahead of the election. Uh, it had a discussion of Russian interference. But this was different. The document detailing the questions asked by Trump and his aides and their reactions was filed several days after that meeting under Crossfire Hurricane and Crossfire Razor, the FBI investigation of Flynn. The two FBI officials listed who approved the report are Kevin Kleinsmith and Peter Strzok. Know that guy? Klinsman is the guy that uh, was responsible for the FISA surveillance conducted on members of the Trump campaign. He opposed Trump and sent an email about the election declaring Viva the Resistance. He is now under review for possible criminal charges for altering a FISA court document, court filing. The FBI used advisor Carter Page as the basis for the original FISA application due to his contacts with the Russians. After that surveillance was approved, however, Federal officials discredited the collusion allegations and noted that Page was a CIA asset. Kleinsmith had allegedly changed the information to state that Page was not working for the CIA. So here we go. We have Strozik uh, and Kleinsmith, who are known enemies or uh, people that do not want Donald Trump to be president. They're in charge of the investigation. And one of them, Klein Smith, apparently, you know, made false statements, changed evidence for the FISA court. Okay? Strozik, we know. He's the guy that, um, whose violation of FBI rules led Justice Department officials to refer him for possible criminal charges. He was ultimately fired. Uh, he didn't hide his loathing of, of the Trump uh, campaign and Trump himself. Documents show Comey briefed President Obama and Vice President Joe Biden on the investigation shortly before the inauguration of Trump. When Comey admitted the communications between Flynn and Russian officials appeared legitimate, Biden reportedly suggested using the Logan Act as an alternative charge against Flynn. The memo contradicts, ev- uh, sorry, the memo contradicts eventual claims by Biden that he did not know about the Flynn investigation. Let us detail some proven but mostly unseen facts. Okay, so these are the facts of the investigation, according to Jonathan Turley. And I you know, can only uh, read them to you and say that it makes sense to me. First, the Russian collusion allegations were based in large part on the dossier funded by the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee. The Clinton campaign repeatedly denied paying for the dossier until after the election when it was 
when the campaign was confronted with irrefutable evidence that the money had been uh, buried among legal expenditures. New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman, who's no fan of anybody uh, that sniffs around Trump, wrote, "Folks, folks involved in funding this lied about it and with sanctimony for a year. They lied for a year about it. We spent, what, two and a half years? of the Trump uh, administration on this hoax. Okay, now you understand why I want to talk about this. Second, FBI agents had warned that dossier author Christopher Steele may have been used by Russian intelligence to plant false information to disrupt the election. Are you kidding me? The whole story was about how the Trump campaign was colluding with Putin and colluding with Russian intelligence to try and steal the election from Hillary Clinton. Meanwhile, the biggest interruption, the biggest interference of the election was the Steele dossier. We spent two years on it after Trump was elected. And it turns out FBI agents had warned back in 2016 that Steele may have been used by Russian intelligence to plant false information to disrupt the election. They were using Steele, they were using the dossier to try and defeat Trump, with the sources being Russians. Third, the Obama administration had been told that the basis for the FISA application was dubious and likely false. Yet it continued the investigation. And then someone linked its existence to the media. Another declassified document shows that after the New York Times ran a leaked story to the investigation, even Strozik had balked at the account as misleading and inaccurate. His early 2017 memo affirmed that there was no evidence of any individuals in contacts with Russians. And yet Mueller wasn't even hired yet. This is early 2017. This information came as the collusion stories were turning into a frenzy that would last years. Fourth, the investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller and inspector general found no evidence of collusion or knowing contact between the Trump campaign and Russian officials. What inspectors general did find were false statements of possible criminal conduct by Comey and others. While unable to say it was the reason for their decisions, they also found statements of animus against Trump and his campaign by the FBI officials who were leading the investigation. Former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein testified he never would have approved renewal of the FISA surveillance and encouraged further investigation into such bias. Finally, Obama and Biden were aware of the investigation, as were the administration officials who publicly ridiculed Trump when he said there was spying on his campaign. Others, like House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, declared they had evidence of collusion but never produced it. Countless reporters, columnists, and analysts still continue to deride, as writer Max Boots said it, the spinning of absurd conspiracy theories about how the FBI supposedly spied on the Trump campaign. And so, you know, that willful blindness continues to today. It informs the current campaign. I guarantee you, if you ran a poll right now, you would say that you would find that there's a big chunk of the American public that thinks that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia to steal the 2016 election. When that couldn't be further from the truth. That in fact, the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee hired foreign nationals 
Christopher Steele, who's a former British spy, foreign national, who then subsourced that work to Russian nationals to create the Steele dossiers, which were salacious, have never been verified, no one has proven any of them, and they were used to start an investigation at the FBI that not only impacted the 2016 election, but the next two years of our administration. That completely, not completely, that in some ways hijacked the entire Trump administration. And why'd they do that? Certainly to win the political game, right? If we spend two years focused on this, we're not spending two years worried about the economy or jobs or taxes or the environment or anything that we should be working on. That, my friends, is a circus. And that's what's been going on. So finally, the last thing I want to talk about here, and maybe why I go off uh, a little bit, get a little bit excited when we talk about some of the things we just covered. I found this wonderful piece by a gentleman named Paul Graham. And if you just Google Paul Graham, he's got his own website, paulgraham.com, and it's entitled The Four Con- uh, sorry, Quadrants of Conformism. I think this is really brilliant, and uh, it informs why I think the way I do and what I think uh, or how I feel and how, how I present them to you. So hopefully that helps, helps some understanding. I do want to read for you a little bit uh, here. One of the most revealing ways to classify people is by the degree and aggressiveness of their conformism. Imagine a four-quadrant coordinate system whose horizontal axis uh, runs from conventional-minded on the left to independent-minded on the right, and whose vertical axis runs from passive at the bottom to aggressive at the top. The resulting four quadrants define four types of people. Starting in the upper left and going counterclockwise, you have aggressively conventionally-minded folks, passively conventionally-minded folks, then on the bottom right, passively independent-minded, and top right, aggressively independent-minded. And you do find this. I think, um, you know, this, this uh, article goes on, and it's brilliant. I highly encourage you to read it. But I am, I think, an aggressively independent-minded person, and that means a lot of things. Number one, I'm going to be in your face. But number two, I'm going to be contrary to whatever the, you know, received wisdom is in, in almost uh, every case. And you'll see this across the spectrum. Um, Here's some more from Paul. In, a, in adulthood, we can recognize the four types by their distinctive calls, much as you could recognize four species of birds. The call of the aggressively conventional-minded is crush outgroup, whoever that might be. It's rather alarming. Um, the call of the passively conventionally-minded is, what will the neighbors think? The call of the passively independent-minded is, to each his own, which I can sometimes uh, live there. And the call of the aggressively independently minded is epersimovi, which is, I think, Latin. It's a, I had to Google it. It's a, it's a quote from Galileo. Um, basically, you know, the earth still moves is, is the gist of it. And if you know the story of Galileo, you understand, right? He was the guy that said, hey, look, the earth is not the center of the universe. And uh, at some point, you know, he just said, look, Man, the earth still moves. It's kind of like, you know, the facts are the facts. So to get on, Paul then says, the four types are not equally common. There are more passive people than aggressive ones, and far more conventional-minded people than independent-minded ones. So the passively conventional-minded are the largest group, 
and the aggressively independent-minded the smallest. Since one quadrant depends more on one's personality than the nature of the rules, most people would occupy the same quadrant even if they'd grown up in a quite different society. As an example, there's a Princeton professor, Robert George, who wrote, I sometimes ask students what their position on slavery would have been had they been white and living in the South before the Civil War. Guess what? They all would have been abolitionists. They all would have bravely spoken out against slavery and worked tirelessly against it. Paul goes on to say, he's too polite to say so, but of course they would. And indeed, our default assumption should not be merely that his students would, on average, have behaved the same way people did at the time. But that the ones who are aggressively conventionally minded today would have been aggressively conventionally minded then too. In other words, that they'd not only have fought against slavery, they'd not only not have fought against slavery, but that they'd have been among its staunchest defenders. It's, uh, Paul says, it's, I'm biased, I admit, but it seems to me that aggressively conventional-minded people are responsible for a disproportionate amount of the trouble of the world. And a lot of the customs we've evolved since the Enlightenment have been designed to protect the rest of us from them. In particular, the retirement of the concept of heresy and its replacement by the principle of freely debating all sorts of different ideas, even ones that are currently considered unacceptable, without any punishment for those who try them out to see if they work. Why do the independent-minded need to be protected, though? Because they have all the new ideas. To be a successful scientist, for example, it's not enough just to be right. You have to be right when everyone else is wrong. Quick sidebar, that's why this consensus about whatever we're calling it now, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know, Einstein wrote or said something about he had uh, published his theories and a hundred German scientists signed a letter saying he was wrong. And he said, it didn't take a hundred, it just took one. Where are they? Go ahead and prove my theory wrong. But of course, the letter didn't, right? So back to Paul. Uh, you have to be right when everyone else is wrong to be a successful scientist. Conventional-minded people can't do that. For similar reasons, all successful startup CEOs are not merely independent-minded, but aggressively so. So it's no coincidence that societies prosper only to the extent that they have customs for keeping the conventional-minded at bay. And that is maybe one of the most important things that we can do today. I see so much going on in Twitter, in the news, everywhere, online. Conventional-minded folks shunning independent thought. And that, my friends, is a recipe for disaster. That's all we have today. 